how am I going to get him from 88 to 96? By, by using a radar gun or a diamond kinetics ball every month without implementing any changes isn't going to get those 8 miles an hour. I got to use new drills and techniques to bolster his performance. And I think that's where technology can be used inappropriately. Or, hey, I, I need to see differential on a fastball curve slider change rather than what he just If you want more power, better vision, and a bulletproof mindset, then I would like to welcome you to CG+, Complete Games Online Player Development Center. Now, baseball and softball players of all ages and skill levels can access a multimedia experience providing education and instruction on your personal mobile platform. Rob Cruz has put together an online video portal, a remote hitting program, as well as a series of online hitting courses boasting a curriculum that features pitch recognition strategies, power, video analysis, mental skills, and then some. For more info, log on to www.cg.plus. That's www.cg.plus to find out how you can complete your game today. Welcome to the Transcending Sport Podcast with Rob Cruz, an audio experience bringing you interviews, conversations, and more from some of the most intriguing personalities in the sports world. And now, your host, Rob Cruz. What's up, everybody? This is Transcending Sport. I'm your host, Rob Cruz. My guest is Coach Darren Gurney, international baseball coach, CEO and founder of Rising Star Baseball Camp, assistant baseball coach at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York. Coach Darren Gurney, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Rob. Thanks for having me. Real excited to talk baseball, especially when we're all hunkered down right now. Absolutely. This is the best. It's a great way to kill time. And for me, it's been a great way to kind of rehash and reestablish some connections. Just kind of getting back and, and circling back and saying, hey, how you doing? It's been five years. It's been 10 years. I know you're not too busy right now. <laughs> I know you got some time. <laughs> Sometimes I've had hey, people. Hey, listen, I just yeah. set up. I just set up a home run derby in my backyard for my 12-year-old, so it looks like I carried away with that. <laughs> That's great. That's great, man. So th this is a special podcast for me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I love where I grew up. Like, I love New Rochelle, New York. And it's, it's, it's for those who don't know, New Rochelle is a suburb of New York City. It's, a, it's about three train stops from, it's two train stops from, Harlem, from the Bronx, three from Harlem, four from Manhattan. And we didn't know we were that close to the city when we grew up. <laughs> we just knew that we were, we just knew that our, our town was pretty big. And then we got older. We're well, like, that's right. We're like, we got yeah, older. We're like, our town isn't really that big. <laughs> <laughs> but for us, you know, growing up, the block was big. Like, New Rochelle, we played stickball. And, we, you know, we, we, we played Nerf football in the front of the building. And we had to stop in between first and second down and let a car go by. You know, we did all, yeah. the, we did, we did all those things that you did as a kid growing up in the quote unquote streets. But um and then, you know, going to Nurselle and going to Nurse High School and the, how we met um was you were the the baseball coach at Nurse High School, um, head varsity baseball coach at Nurse High School. Um when I when I was introduced to you. And then, you know, I really kinda liked your energy and, and I always liked your approach to the game and and the way you went about, you know, with the passion uh that you went about coaching the game. 
So I've always had that that that, that respect for you and that and that, that reverence for you. And now here we go. I haven't talked to you in so many years, but this is going to be great because we get a chance to kind of catch up and let everybody kind of hear us catch up. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. We have that those roots in New Rochelle, Nero mm-hmm. in the house. Yes. And, <laughs> and then you and I have always had tremendous chemistry baseball-wise. And mm-hmm. as you know, in the industry, there's some people you just have that natural flow with baseball-wise. Yep. And when, and when you talk to them, you could go three, five, ten hours and it seems, you know, and next thing you know, it felt like 20 minutes, but next thing you know, you killed your whole day talking to them. That's and right. you and I have always had that. Yeah. Always, yeah. So I want you to just tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get a little bit of a profile of who you are. And you can start wherever you want to start. College, before that, high school, you know, you want to start, you know, when you were three years old. You can go, you can even go back that far and then and bring us up to, to as close as you can get to that. I'll, I'll interject when, when I want to kind of pinpoint or highlight something that I, I want I would like us to elaborate on further, but go ahead and shoot. Yeah, so, you know, baseball's really been such an important part of my life. It's enabled me to establish so many great relationships, both with coaches, former players, and so forth. Um, and as you said, passion is the first thing that comes to mind. I was fortunate my last two years of college, I played for a guy named Kevin Benzing, at Washington University, and I would say he passed his passion on to me. And when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I got called, hey, do you want to coach baseball down in the Bronx, be a head JV baseball coach? I was like, why not? And I fell in love with it, not only interacting with the 15, 16-year-old kids, but you know, being in control of a baseball team. And from there, it encouraged me to apply to grad school to be a teacher so baseball could be part of my life every day and you know ever since I've been you know writing baseball books and making instructional DVDs started my summer program baseball camp and been fortunate to coach at the college level a good deal over the last 30 years and in my summer program I work with athletes ages 4 to 16 so I see a wide cross-section and I've even done a lot of youth coaching with my son the last five, six years. So in that sense, I've been fortunate, Rob, to work with so many different aged athletes in baseball. And that's been a real diverse experience for me. Wow, that's great. And, and it's funny because I, uh, when I did my travel teams, well, first of all, living in the Rochelle, you, you're, you're, you can't avoid diversity. Right. Because there's so much diversity, it's just in that one city. It's probably the most, it's got to be one of the most diverse cities in Westchester County, in New York itself. Yeah, well, we have 65 different countries represented by our student body at New Rochelle High School. And that's what I'm saying. And, yep. you know, you walk in the front entrance where the embassy is, and they have the flags of all the different countries we have represented. We have so many different people who move to New Rochelle. Maybe they're working at the UN or some other organization because they know New Rochelle welcomes cultural diversity. So it's kind of, you know, a target market for that, if you will. You know, I grew up on May Street. I'm not sure if you even know, where, you know May Street, it's right, right, right of off course. there. Yeah, okay, so just on my block, now May Street, May Street has two parts to it. There's a there's a, like an upper part, which I, I call the bright side, and there was like the dark side of May Street because there was no, the buildings are so tall, there's no sunlight over there. But right. I, we, just on my block, which is just half the block, we had <laughs> Colombians, Portuguese people, Peruvian people, Jamaican people, Haitian people, Mexican people. I mean, it was unbelievable. Indian people. 
just on my block, my neighborhood was that diverse. I grew up in that neighborhood with people who spoke all those different languages, ate all those different kinds of foods, dressed, religious cultures. I mean, it was, my, my childhood was really, really cool. It was, it was cool. And what's amazing, Rob, is you were probably the only one in that whole neighborhood who played baseball at a serious level. I mean, you know, one of the negatives of New Rochelle as a baseball person mm -hmm. is we didn't draw the Hispanic countries that tend to gravitate to baseball. That's, right? you that's want Dominicans, true. You want Dominicans and Puerto Ricans primarily. That's and true. we drew a lot of Colombians and Guatemalans yes. and Mexicans. Yes. And as a result, you know, you look at the New Rochelle High School baseball team, both when I coached there for 10 years, and currently, even though the school's 48% Hispanic, mm -hmm. the baseball team, unfortunately, does not have a lot of Hispanic representation or even African-American representation. So, you know, that's, that's one of the disappointments with all that diversity baseball unfortunately baseball doesn't took a hit. draw those cultures but baseball took a hit and i'll tell you what so because primarily when they come from the other countries soccer is their sport of choice absolutely um, sure. obviously and then with any Af african-american community i was always the only black kid on the team yeah and a lot of my and, a lot, and growing up a lot i had maybe maybe, maybe there might have been one other one but my thing is only because football and basketball was so popular at nurse high school so like that was the sport that you would gravitate to as an African American kid because football and basketball were like the sports that, that we play that you played. And if you played baseball, it's like uh, yeah, baseball. Not after little league. <laughs> I mean, after little league, it's like you go <laughs> you go to you go to do tackle. And don't forget, New Rochelle's youth tackle is was is and still is one of the best youth tackle programs in the country. No, and, for and, sure. And people, and why... people come from everywhere, change their address, yeah. lie about where they live, just to be a part of what we had going on in you tackle, especially at that time. No, and they're the role models. I mean, Ray Rice, Courtney Green, now Jordan Lucas, NFL player. Yeah, yeah. You know, those guys help people say, wait, I want to bring my kid or my family to New Rochelle because yeah. I want to get them in that youth tackle yeah. program. And we really haven't had that in baseball ironically we've had a lot of kids make it to the pro level in New Rochelle we have. recently yeah. with Tom yeah. Kohler yep. and Johnny Valente and yep. Matt Duran and now Jojo Gray who's doing real well with the Dodgers so we've recently gotten to that point but mm -hmm. you know previously it was football basketball where all the right. role models you're performed. right you're right you're absolutely right and um so now you Come out of G, come out of G Dubs. You, you coach you coach high school. How'd you how'd you end up? I mean, let's 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 go back. Let's go back to the camp, the Roger Star camp, because I think there's something to be said about people who train young kids. Because in order for you to be successful in training young kids, as a coach, you have to be incredibly three things: incredibly patient, incredibly creative, and you have to be incredibly um, your communication skills have to be outstanding. You, know, yeah, you sure have to be able to communicate effectively. It, you know, so obviously, how has being the CEO and founder of the Rising Star Baseball Camp in Nurselle for so many years and working with the youth helped you to be able to transform what you do at the pro international level and at the and at the collegiate level? How has that helped you? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question, Rob. So the the genesis of the camp was 1998 I'm the New Rochelle High School 
baseball coach, and I'm looking around like we were just saying, and I'm seeing all white faces. And I said to myself, I want to draw in kids from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. different levels of athleticism. Let me start a summer camp. And my first year, 22 years ago, summer 1998, I was fortunate to connect with the New Rochelle Parks Department and Bill Zimmerman. And they set us up at Trinity Field and then ultimately D'Onofrio and later on Albert <laughs> Leonard Middle School. Oh, yeah, you an idea about that for I remember those fields. I hit my first home run ever on Trinity Field. <laughs> Oh my yeah, gosh. that's a nice shot. That's a nice shot over there. My mom wasn't even my mom wasn't even looking. I went I went all the way around the bases, came home, touched the plate. I ran over to the bleachers where she was sitting. I'm like, Ma, do you see my home run? She's like, Oh my god, I missed it. Wow. She couldn't even she couldn't even blame the cell phone. I was like, she couldn't even blame the cell phone. My sister probably distracted her. I don't know what happened. Oh my gosh, man. But go ahead, I'm sorry. So yeah, so we got started in ninety eight with the goal of bringing in kids from different backgrounds. And sure enough, we got Jeff McDermott, who ended up playing pro basketball overseas. Yep. And we got Tommy Kohler our first year, who you know was a seven, eight-year major leaguer. And we got some tremendous athletes. Mm-hmm. Paul Brzeese, mm-hmm. first-team All-American in Brzees. high school. Yeah. yeah, so the goal was to bring in kids of different backgrounds to help my and feed my New Rochelle high school team. Little did I know that years later all these parents would clamor for me to bring in younger kids and before you know it we were bringing in Mm four-year-olds so it kind of expanded beyond what my original goals were Mm -hmm. and you're right you have to communicate with a six-year-old kid and their parent completely different than you would a 15-year-old who's already on his varsity team hoping to get a college scholarship absolutely because the goals are different and they show up to camp with a whole different perspective and what they're hoping to get out of it Mm -hmm. so yeah you're completely right about the communication piece but also just knowing how to navigate people who come from different backgrounds we scholarship a tremendous amount of kids every summer (coughs) excuse me Mm -hmm. and that is something that has been very fulfilling scholarshiping 20 to 50 kids either full or partial every summer and getting to meet these kids from you know the Bronx New Rochelle difficult backgrounds Mm -hmm. has been especially rewarding and then a lot of them come back and end up coaching with us oh that's nice they can kind of get back on it that's good yeah yeah you know what's funny um when I did my travel teams too in Westchester so I I got two names I'm going to throw at you right now okay Shoot. And they're both New Rochelle guys. And I took them on my team, one, because they were New Rochelle guys, and two, because I just, these kids were tremendous athletes. Uh, Demetrius Borden. Oh, gosh. Wow. Demetrius wait. was at our camp. Great so, so, wait, one, wait, oh, wait, one more. One more. Daryl Wood. So, Daryl Wood had that lefty stroke run. Let me just, t- let me tell you. Football kids, hilarious. Let me tell you. I, let me just say this. Those two guys, are two of the most talented athletes I have ever seen. Yeah, for sure. You know, those guys ended up gravitating to football. And I wish they didn't gravitate to football. There was nothing I could do about it. Football was their first love. And I had to make, and and I made tremendous um, modifications in their their commitment level. I I sent Daryl Wood to a Milwaukee Brewers tryout. Yeah, Um, I can see it. And I was like, I called the scout. I was like, listen, you gotta see this kid. And what happened was he was playing seven on seven um, football during the week. 
and he was also doing like the um, the double sessions and, and then at the time of, of the tryout so some he, somehow he jammed his finger and he couldn't hit so I was like yeah. you can't go to the workout man if your finger's jammed you can't, you're not gonna be able to swing the bat he was swinging the bat like a man at the age of like 15 <laughs> no and those two guys those two guys Rob are a perfect microcosm for what's going on in professional baseball where we're not getting the African American guys perfect, who as kids perfect might gravitate to the football or basketball because they're fast moving sports and you know they don't necessarily like the pace of baseball or they don't have role models or their fathers aren't around to groom them in Little League so you know that's that's one of the disappointments of being able to pull those kids from the younger levels to hook them with baseball at a young age yeah but I also think when you look at the at the at the end game for the for the African American or the or the socioeconomically baseball is way too expensive yeah, I mean we, we take sometimes we take balls, yeah. Yeah, sometimes we take we take that for granted. With you got to buy a kid a new pair of cleats every six months, gloves, bats. Now with the wood bat stuff, okay. Every time he breaks a bat, I got to buy another hundred twenty dollar bat. Like you know, and, and the I, traveling. I mean, and the other part of it is like baseball kind of and, and all that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And but baseball and basketball. First of all, I'm sorry, but football and basketball are all full scholarship sports. If you play full, yeah, if, like, if you play Division One football practice, or Division One baseball, basketball for nothing. True. It doesn't cost you anything to shoot at the hollow, you know. So, but like a lot of baseball know. players are playing are paying tuition because you got you got eleven point seven scholarships, right. and you have thirty five guys on a roster. In basketball, if you play basketball Division One, you're not paying a dime. You play Division One football, you're not playing a dime either. So, economically, at the end of it, especially at the collegiate level, yeah. it's more economically re- uh, reasonable. From a socioeconomic perspective, than it is to kind of play baseball because you're like, okay, I'm not gonna pay sixty grand for tuition to play a sport that we already put all this money into just to be able to play it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you add up, like you said, eleven point seven, divide that by twenty-eight men on a roster for a college baseball team. Most guys are getting maximum fifty percent scholarship. So where are they going to come up with thirty grand at a lot of these private colleges to play baseball and, that's, and go that, to get an education? That's that's one of the issues too. So I think yeah. But I, sure. if, if, if I could go back in time, I think I would have worked harder because those those kids could have been they could have been high school draft picks easily. You know, Daryl. Oh, Daryl. The, the confidence when Daryl would get in the box, <laughs> just had so much confidence, and Demetrius played so freely out of shortstop. Yeah, he was a great. Oh, great just so athlete. graceful to yeah, watch. Those yeah. kids were good. So you got your, div- your diversity program intact. We, we, we always thought alike because I, I was the same way. I had such a diverse team. I had kids that had never been to a bar mitzvah. And I'd have, if I had a couple of Jewish kids on the team, it would be like, yeah, you guys are all going to get to go to this bar mitzvah. You've never been to one. You have no idea what it is. But it, it created this culture, you know, amongst amongst the kids because you would, you're interacting with people on an intimate, intimate level that you would normally never interact with. Parents, too. For sure, but, and, that's, but, but, and that's what makes life so special, interacting yeah. with different cultures. So now you, we got this high school thing. How'd you, how'd you get to, how'd you become the Minnesota High School coach? So I was coaching JV baseball at Iona Prep, mm-hmm. and we had a phenomenal team, as they still do now. Just, you know, I could put out two teams worth of kids, and we were just stacked. You know, I had two catchers that hit one over the varsity fence at Iona Prep, and 10th grade. I mean, just out of, out of control how much talent I had there. 
And we played New Rochelle, and I was talking to Mario Scarano, who you probably know, the old athletic Absolutely, director. I know Mario Scarano. <laughs> and he's like, Darren, he's like, I see how you run your team. I'd love to get you over at New Rochelle when the time's right. And literally the next year, he said, Darren, I'd love for you to be my baseball coach. Because Anthony Rodriguez was, I think, progressing more into softball and wrestling. Mm -hmm. So um, I coached one year at JV at New Row. And then I was a varsity coach, you know, in my mid to late 20s, which was a very young age to take over a program. But I embraced it. And, you know, I started doing 12 months a year programs before that was Vogue. And we were getting after it, like, in September, throwing bullpens at City Park. They probably, throw, you they know, probably called you crazy. I know they called you crazy. Oh, <laughs> you know, but New Rochelle, Robin, you know, we talk about sports specialization. Mm -hmm. Now it's the norm where everyone's going 10, 12 months a year with soccer and basketball and mm -hmm. baseball. But I was doing it when it was looked upon as, wow, he's strange making kids show up in September for baseball. But... I wasn't making anyone do anything. I was just calling kids saying, hey, look, if you're not playing football or soccer, come join us. And New Rochelle's such a big school that it's hard to play varsity football and soccer that yeah. almost all my kids were free in the fall. So we started getting after it on a 10, 12-month basis. And it made a huge difference. You know, by 2000, we were league champs. By 2001, we went 20-4, and four, best record in school history. And I attribute a lot of that to not only our camp program, but starting to get after it 10 months a year with those kids that weren't playing other sports in the offseason. And I, I think that's the secret to have a successful high school program is to have either to have a youth program that just feeds your program. And, and if the varsity coach is not uh, involved, aggressively involved in the development of the youth coaches and the youth players, that varsity coach is doing himself or herself a disservice. And, you know, that, that, that's that been Mike Chaparelli's model for years. No doubt. And, and then having modified coaches and mm -hmm. freshmen and JV coaches that understand your system and you do coaching clinics. And, yeah. and I still do free coaching clinics throughout the year for not only the, the school coaches, but also for the youth coaches and the dads in the community. So when we're teaching a figure four slide or we're teaching hitting or pitching mechanics or how to design a practice plan, everyone's kind of on the same page and there's a consistency from sixth grade all the way up through 12th grade. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. So now, how'd you, how'd you get to the international situation? When did that happen? How did it happen? Yeah, so I was at a World Coaches Baseball Convention up at Mohegan Sun. Oh, okay. And I saw a man speaking about Japanese baseball, Pete Caliendo. And I went over and introduced myself. He's like, oh, yeah, you coach at Keio Academy, the Japanese school. I heard mm. about some of the amazing things you guys are doing over there. And I I had, after I left Iona College, which was a really intense Division One baseball program and schedule, I... You know, I've had a family and I started teaching AP economics and my time was limited to be traveling all over the country with a Division One baseball program. So I wanted to coach in a very intense environment and KO Academy was the perfect fit for me. And sure enough, I met Coach Caliendo, USA baseball coach, and he said, hey, you want to go to Japan this summer? And I was like, yeah, I want to go to Japan, Pete. Where do I <laughs> sign up? He's like, well, I'd love for you to coach the team. So I took a 16U team to Japan, and we played all throughout the Tokyo region. 
and just incredible watching the way they train. We we get off the bus, Rob, and 60 Japanese kids would salute us and bow, and then they proceeded to kick our butt when we stepped between the lines. <laughs> and they didn't take their foot off the accelerator. Wow. You know, when that USA bus shows up, they really were fired up. And I mean, I got to show you video of these kids running after our bus on the way out, waving for about a half mile, chasing the bus. And I said to my guys, oh, they're just happy that you increased their batting averages 25 points today. <laughs> like, they don't like you. They just like that the batting average went from 320 Come to back. 45. Come back. I want to hit 900. <laughs> exactly. But what an experience, man. And, uh. And then I was able to even coach my guys at Kayo that much better. And I showed up wearing like authentic Japanese uniforms that a lot of the coaches had given me as gifts because there's a whole gift-giving ritual over there. Yes, yes. And they're such honorable, gracious people. And yeah. it really touched my soul. And I dedicated my, my third baseball book to the Japanese people for how much they've changed my life and some of the people I've gotten close with over the last eight, ten years from Japan. Just amazing. And then that morphed into me coaching a U.S. team down in the Dominican. Mm -hmm. Last summer we went to Italy, which is a phenomenal cultural experience. And then this summer we're headed to Cuba in August. So, you know, everything hopefully will pan out with the coronavirus and us being unable to, to travel over there. But so it's been fantastic coaching overseas and learning their techniques, learning yeah. how their players approach the game. And that's what I want to get into with you a little bit, if we can, because sure. I remember um, when I played for the Nurse Robins, we, we we played a game against the Japanese national team down at City Park. Yeah. And they and we played a game with with an American baseball, and then we played a game with the the ball that they use, which is kind of like this yeah. rubber kind of yeah. yeah the Kanko ball. Yeah, it was a little bit different. But, I mean, we obviously we were able to play with it, but, I mean, it was just a little different. And we had, like you said, we had this gift-giving ritual pre-game. And uh, they gave us these gifts, and we gave them, we exchanged gifts. I mean, it was really, really kind of spiritual almost. And, and it, was, it was funny because you see how when you go to other countries, because I see it when I go to other states. When you go to other parts of even our country, the culture of that country, I'm sorry, the culture of that state yeah. Or that region of America is very, very um, noticeable in the competition and how they play, how they prepare. Uh, it, oh, could be, it, could, sure. it could be food. It could be the, yep. the, it could be some kind of a rodeo. There's a rodeo going on. I, I'm like, what's yep. going on around here? You know, yep. so like um, they might have something at the beach where you have like a bonfire or whatever with the teams. I mean, there's all kinds of different things. And then, now when you start talking about international, now you're talking about culture. You're talking about uh, the, the way that they just the way they go about life, and they incorporate that into into their sports because that's just what they do. So, what were some of the differences um, that st that stand out to you with the Japanese culture and how they play baseball as opposed to the American culture? And what were some of the things that you took that you took and you borrowed? I'm sure you got some things that you that you that you uh, implement in what you do now from what you learned from them also. Yeah, so every summer experience I've had traveling overseas, I like last summer in Italy, Rob, I would get off the field and there'd be two Italian men running at me with beers, draft beers. <laughs> so we've ch 
shake hands, and before I was done picking up my baseball bag, I had two beers in my hand. How dare you drink in um, front of the kids? How dare you drink alcohol in front of the children, though? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. It's different, and then, yeah. And then, and then in Dominican, <laughs> they're bringing me plates of chicken and rice before I get on the bus. Oh, man, that's And great. then, yeah, and Japan was incredible because they were so gracious and the gift-giving, they were so generous. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the baseball... We were in Japan for 10 days competing, and I got to say, I think they made one error, both in infield, outfield, and during the nine-inning games, total, during the 10 days. And wow. I remember it was a shortstop, played to his backhand in the sixth hole, and he threw a missile across the diamond, and it was tipped off the top of the first baseman's glove. And I remember the coach looked at him like, no soup for you tonight. I mean, it was <laughs> one... can throw strikes with all three pitches they don't miss spots um the hitters could all execute obviously a bunt but a hit and run i mean they did a hit and run i think six batters in a row against us and we had i started calling pitch outs you know normally 15 16 year olds you're not calling a lot of pitch outs so i'm so i go up to the mound i'm like all right guys we got to start using that pitch out we went over in the hotel i didn't think we were gonna have to implement it but we got to rock and roll with the pitch out and sure enough, we're calling pitch outs, and they're still beating us to the bag. Um, delayed steals. So all of these finer nuances, because, you know, Americans want to often rely on the three-run home run, and the Japanese are doing hit-and-runs and suicide squeeze bunts and delayed steals. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, you're down 6-1 in the second inning. Mm -hmm. And they didn't let up. I mean, first of all, there's no 10-run gong rule, mercy rule overseas. Second of all, they only know one way to play. They don't know how to like, even if they put in their bench, which I don't remember them doing. I think they played usually their top 12 guys start to finish. And the other thing, Rob, is while they're pounding us, they got like 40 guys in a cage working on different bunts and, and hitting drills and standing on top of blocks while, while their starters are kicking our butt. I'm watching these guys do all of these innovative drills. Um, pitchers, they got eight pitchers lined up doing different kind of long tosses. So, you know, it's really unique, their training techniques. They really dedicate themselves to the game. And it's a lot about their culture. Yes. The expression, adopt, adapt. They adopt things from other countries. They become really efficient or adept at it. And they then blend it to their cultural pathways. So, you know, the word sacrifice is part of their culture whereas the word sacrifice bunt we give an american kid a sacrifice bunt sign with men on base you know he's like oh man that's two ribbies i could have had or i want to i want to swing away man i'm selfish. swinging a hot bat this coach that you see me in batting practice rattling the fence selfish but in japan mm -hmm. yeah they're, they're totally selfless in japan so, so you, it's really interesting yeah so you said what so basically what i'm hearing you say is Focus, discipline, and execution are. Yeah, and I would add one. I would add one other adjective: just selflessness. It's not about me. Focus. It's not about the individual. Focus. They don't even. Discipline. Yeah. Execution and selflessness. Hmm. Yeah, and if you know, they don't wear jerseys with their name on the back. I mean, obviously at the pro level they do, but at the youth level, we're giving our kids jerseys with names on the back. In Japan, it's all about the team. You know, they're not wearing their name on the back of their jersey. 
it's truly about the team because we say it but if it's but but it's truly it's not just something that we say it's something that we actually really embody which is which is what i hear you saying yeah and the coaches have so much they have so much respect for the coach there Mm -hmm. there's a terrific book called you gotta have wah which is spelled wa by a guy named robert whiting and it's all about how the japanese families and mothers will do anything to get their kid on the japanese baseball team to play in koshian which is this high school baseball tournament where they shut down everything including the japanese stock exchange to watch this tournament and if you were to read that book or if you were to see some footage of koshian you would understand that this is more than a sport this is a lifestyle hmm. this is a true way of life for them uh, and and we think we're committed to baseball we play on these travel teams that work out in the off season and take airplane rides to georgia texas but what the japanese do is a whole nother level of training and oh. commitment frankly rob yeah i, I see that I, I got a sense of that i had a kid i had a i did a I participated in a in a uh, exchange program where I had a baseball player from Japan come and stay with one of my athletes and go to high, go to school with them and everything and this kid's father happened to be the son of someone who owned a professional baseball team in Japan okay um, so he, he spoke no English he, he pitched for me and when I tell you this kid was throwing a palm ball yep <laughs> You know, and I'm like, how do you throw a palm ball? You're like, you're like 16 years old. Where did you learn how to throw a palm ball from? <laughs> so he's in, he's on the mound, and I never forget, we're playing at White Plains High School. This was this was like fall baseball. We're playing at White Plains High School, and uh, again, I, I don't even know who we're playing, but I went out to the mound because it was like he was, it was a one nothing game. He was winning one nothing. It was like the sixth inning, and I just went out to go check on him, but I had no idea what I was gonna say to him because I, I could I didn't, I didn't speak in Japanese, so I just went out and I just tried to just did my best way to, of communicating with him to figure out, you know, how you feeling. And he just nodded, you know, and he said, he, he gave me that this sign that he was okay and he was able to complete the game. But he was, this kid was so humble and he was so, like, when it came to execution, um, he just executed. I mean, he hit his spots, like you said. He hit his spots. He didn't walk anybody. Um, and he was just just a great teammate, you know, good kid to be on the team. Never, never felt like he was worried about his playing time. He just wanted to be a part. Oh, of it. He just yeah. wanted to be a part of the team. Amazing. By the way, speaking of pitches, mm-hmm. if you go to the U Darvish Museum mm-hmm. in Japan, I believe it's in Hokkaido, he threw 16 different pitches <laughs> when he was a youth player. And there's a famous pitch called the Shuto, which they featured in the in the film made. Uh, what's it called Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck, mm-hmm. and it kind of runs a little bit away from you like a screwball would. But 16 different pitches. And by the way, they don't have pitch counts. You know, we've got all these pitch counts and can't throw more than 105 pitches in a high school game. And then you need five days rest. Mm-hmm. Well, in Japan, there was a kid who threw 256 pitches last year in a game. And then he came back on two days <laughs> rest and threw something like 196 the next outing. <laughs> that's that's, that's so, child abuse, though. <laughs> in America, it's child abuse. In Japan, it's considered being part of the team and sacrificing yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm sacrificing myself. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're making me laugh. You're making me laugh. <laughs> Holy smokes, man. Just different. So that kind of epitomizes the difference in our cultural approach to both baseball and, you know, living life. 
It's different, yeah. So, um, so you're at Lehman College Baseball now, um, over in the Bronx. Uh, how's that? And how'd, how'd you get so, how'd you get over there? So Lehman College has been a tremendous experience. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was my KO team. I got word in the fall that they were going to disband baseball in 2021. So I started, you know, reaching out. A couple people heard that I was on the market. I was fortunate that a bunch of schools, a couple high schools and a couple colleges showed interest in, you know, bringing me in. And sure enough, I reconnected with two of my former teammates, DJ Price, Mm -hmm. who I played with for about six years, semi-pro ball, and James Sisko, who had a you know really storied career at Fordham University. DJ played at Iona College, both really talented Division One ball players. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Oh, you got to join us." So I started meeting with them. And what's great about Lehman College is the players are so bought in to being part of a team. Mm-hmm. And I would say, Rob, it's probably a lot like the approach that kids in Mount Vernon, who are so psyched to be part of the team there. You know, right next door to where we grew up, mm-hmm. and they're and they're they're like sponges. I mean, we went over so many different new techniques this winter, mm-hmm. especially pitching, but hitting and base running, that they just soaked it up. And I really felt like we made a lot of progress. Unfortunately, the NCA, you know, ended our season with the coronavirus probably about 10, 12 days ago. But in leading up to that point, we had just got back from South Carolina. I feel like. We had progressed so much as a team from early January to early March, so it's been it's been a phenomenal experience, and I'm I'm looking forward to continuing to work with the guys. They've already been emailing me a video of themselves and want me to pair it up with major leaguers. So you know, I know you're a big technology guy. We had already done video of every outdoor pen they threw before we went down south. We had already used the diamond kinetics ball and gotten spin rates and VLOs on all the guys. So uh, implementing technology, because when you're coaching at the college level, you do have more time, and the players are going to be more available after hours to do video analysis and talk fundamentals. So, so far, it's been wonderful. Very different than my Division One college coaching experience at Iona, where there was so much travel involved. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't driving to the Bronx. I was going from New Rochelle High School to... Iona College, less than a half a mile away. So Across the definitely street. a different, exactly. <laughs> so definitely a different experience, mm-hmm. but you know I've enjoyed both tremendously. That's cool. That's good. So and on the tech side, you know, you know, what's your what are your thoughts on, you know, obviously baseball has evolved, and, and you've been around long enough to kind of see many evolutions, and it's funny because it's 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 funny how the structure and the hierarchy of baseball, MLB decides what happens in Little League. Although Little League, right. although Little League, or I don't say Little League as a brand, but Youth League, Youth Baseball. <laughs> uh, MLB decides what happens in Youth Baseball. And then Youth Baseball decides who's going to be in MLB because that it, it's about, you know, obviously the cream rises to the top. But so, what what are your thoughts on just the evolution? Uh, how baseball sets this parameter or sets these goals or these these uh, these bars? The launch angle has to be this. The exit velo has to be that. You know, oh. the this the spin rate of a, of a pitch. You know, this is what we're looking for in velo and velo. And 
And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think what happens is people watch television. Like you said, youth players and their parents watch television and they see launch angle and exit velocity and mile per hour. And they think, wow, we got to be doing this. But when I think about technology, I think of a four-step plan to implement it. Step one, get the data, Mm -hmm. get those metrics. And I guess the simplest example would be a stopwatch. Mm -hmm. Long before we had hit tracks and Rapsodo and Diamond Kinetics or even really video camera analysis, Mm -hmm. we had a stopwatch. So let's just use a simple example. So I have a stopwatch. I time a kid in the 60-yard dash, and he runs a 7.5. So step one, I get the data. He's a 7.560. Obviously, he's going to want to get to 7 flat or sub-7 if he's going to have any colleges interested in him. Mm-hmm. Next, I'm going to want to figure out what his inefficiencies are. Where is he not mechanically sound? So step two, what is he doing wrong? Is he moving his head too much? Is he flailing his arms? Is he not even running in a straight line? Is he too hunched over? Step three, I'm now going to fix those inefficiencies with drills. So maybe I'm going to do certain kinds of plyometrics to build his foot speed or explosiveness. Maybe I'm going to do some training that's going to make his arm action more effective. And then step four, I'm going to retest him, Rob. And now I'm going to use the stopwatch again, get my technology out again. And I'm going to see, is he down to a 7-3? a 7-2, did we get him sub-7 because we implemented these new drills? And unfortunately, Rob, not enough people are using these newer technologies like Rapsodo in that four-step method. So, okay, I have a kid kid throwing 88 and he wants to get to 96. How am I going to get him from 88 to 96? By, By using a radar gun or a diamond kinetics ball every month, without implementing any changes isn't going to get those eight miles an hour. I got to use new drills and techniques to bolster his performance. And I think that's where technology can be used inappropriately. Or, hey, I I need to see his differential on his fastball curve slider change rather than what does he just top out at? Because as you know, Rob, it's not just what am I topping out at, it's what is my fastball versus my change to throw up in hitter's timing. So I know I went on a rant. No, no, that, that was that was that was very helpful. That was very helpful because, and I agree one hundred percent. But it go come down to just because you have the technology doesn't make you this great, phenomenal coach. You have to be able to take the technology and know something. Because after you do the assessment, the big question is now what? Yeah. Because you want to be able to validate. The drills that you've employed to help that kid get better so if the drills that you have employed have not helped that kid get better when you retest then obviously that's not the drill for for that player and you need, you need to find another drill so the technology is only as good as the coach or or is only no, exactly. as good as the creates the level of creativity and knowledge of the coach because like you said you, you're implementing those plyos or whatever you have to do because you know from your, based on your experience that plyometrics are like the best way to improve first step quickness, explosiveness, just, uh, uh, et cetera. So now that's, that's retest, let's prove it, let's validate it. Exactly, and I think people fall for the glitz and the glamour mm-hmm. of the technology. Mm-hmm. You know, what, is, what does an exit velocity matter if I don't know my launch angle? 
And what is my launch angle matter if I don't pair it with my exit velocity? velocity. Right. So like if John Carlos Stanton or Aaron Judge, just use two New York guys, or Pete Alonso, are hitting the ball 122 miles an hour, when I know that, then I know they want to have a certain launch angle so the ball does get over the outfielder's head. Mm -hmm. But if my nine batter only has an exit velo of 96 miles an hour, well then, or even 86 miles an hour, then my launch angle better vary accordingly. And I don't think people pair them well effectively. Right. I think they just shoot out the numbers and it's like, oh, he's got this launch angle and this exit velocity. And I don't think they really use them to any kind of end game. You're 100% right. So, like, what I'll do is um, I'll look at the exit velo of a swing, but I also want to know what the acceleration rate and the bat speed of that swing was all at the same time. Because sometimes, and what, what I found is that this this kid's exit velo might be high when his bat speed is lower because he has more right. he has more efficiency, he has more control, he's he's getting to the ball differently. With, without swinging so hard, and, and the kids who were swinging harder, wow, your bat speed went up, but your exit velo went down. So what does that tell you? That tells you that you're swinging right. too hard. You're not. You're not efficient. Right. And if we can implement drills to make them more efficient, those are the players that make these huge jumps. And when these kids from go being to these, a mediocre to a great ball, ball. absolutely. But when these kids go to these combines, what happens? The problem is that they're, they're doing these contests. He has the best bat speed. He has the best exit velo. And everybody's swinging out of their socks. And they're not understanding that that's not your game swing, dude. That's your combine swing. Right. Like right. You, I, I, need, I need your game. I need what happens in the game. When you look at the MLB uh, home run derby, for example, the home run derby, the pitchers are throwing 60 miles an hour. So, of course, they can swing that fast and swing that hard. But they don't swing that hard when the pitcher's throwing 97 miles an hour. You can't. You miss it. Well, that's exactly right. And can they react to off speed? Can they track a good slider or breaking pitch or splitter? So, yeah, everyone can hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball right over home plate, but can they react to pitches on the corners or, or react to off speed? And that's what separates, you know, the men from the boys, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm learning, and that's what I'm finding these days with the tack is I'm trying to get people, the people who are training with it and the people who are coaching, to go into it with the right mentality and the right frame of mind because if you go into the technology with the wrong frame of mind what's going to happen is you're going to have, you're going to be you're going to be misusing the technology and you're going to be going backwards instead of forward and that is not what technology was meant to be but however what's happening and I was funny I was talking with this talking about this uh, the other day I, I, I've talked to so many different people on the phone the last few days <laughs> that I forgot who got I, nothing I, else to do. <laughs> I forgot who I said what to but we were talking about how the, um, the, the the level of frustration that the coaches at the at the upper levels were having with the implementation of technology. Um, that's one, and then two. After I got this data, after I got this information, what do I do now? And do I even right. have time? To, do I even have time to do that the way that I would like to do it? Well, and you're someone, Rob, who's always gravitated to technology and used it effectively. Whereas a lot of coaches, they might be 40, 50, 60 years old, they see the technology like, well, I got young players who are 18 to 21 years old in my college program, I gotta have the technology. But they really don't wanna allocate or change their coaching timelines so that they have to 
spend an extra hour, two hours, three hours a week using the technology. So they, they want to tell the kids, yeah, we have a Rapsodo or we have radar guns to check your velocity, but do they really want to use it and then work to getting them more efficient and improving their, in this case, velocity? So that's, that's the tug of war. If I've been coaching college baseball for 35 years, do I want to really change my practice planning? Do I really want to change how I do things when I'm already kind of strapped for time? And you're someone who's really been effective at doing that and saying, hey, here's this new cool technology. How am I going to make my athletes better? And that's why there's no one better out there than you for bringing your hitting lab to different universities and saying to coach, hey, look, I can help you with this. Here's how you would integrate it into your routine and your weekly practices. Well, I think, and I appreciate you saying that. And I think uh, the reason why it's different for me is because I don't, I'm not a follower. So I'm not just going to go out and buy technology just because everybody else bought it. <laughs> uh, right. Before I do it, I do, I thoroughly, thoroughly research it. I'll buy something and you won't even know I have it until six months, three months later. After I've figured out and mastered it, like how am I going to implement this? And I might use it for two or three people only just to learn how I'm going to use it for the masses. So, like, I'm really, really, in, in that way, very, very, um, my, my vetting system, you know, my vetting approach for technology is very, very under high scrutiny. I never adopt something that I'm not 100% positive that is going to help my players. And it's not, and it has to be 100% user-friendly for me to fit into, you know, making it fit into what I do. And, and I think that's, that's the main thing is, like, making it, is this technology going to fit is it going to fit into what I'm doing right. or not? You know, and, and, and if it isn't going to fit, if I can't figure out how to make it fit, am I humble enough to go and ask for help with somebody who may be able to help me to, to get to get this right? But, well, and the other piece, Rob, is mm -hmm. we've all stood there in mm -hmm. front of 10 to 30 different players where either you can't get it to work because your phone or your technology is having a glitch yeah. or you don't understand how to get it to that next screen. So when you use technology, you take a risk, especially when... You know, you've built it into your practice plan and everyone's standing around waiting for you to get the machine to work. And it's almost like a teacher that's in front of the room mm -hmm. and he or she can't get the video on the screen because some of the wires aren't hooked up. Right. And now all of a sudden, you know, the inmates are getting restless <laughs> and you've gotten, them, you've gotten them excited. Hey, I got this new diamond kinetics ball and they get your spin rates, guys. And then all of a sudden the thing's not working mm -hmm. and the practice intensity went from 100 down to 30 and a snap of a finger. And, and, I'll, and I'll, to that, I'll say this. And this is a, this is a, it's just a tip for everyone out there who's employing technology, with, especially with groups or teams. Um, one, never announce that you're going to use technology. Just bring it and use it. Yeah. Two, <laughs> two, two, always have a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, and a plan E. And three, never allow the technology to be the feature of the practice or the drill or the, mm. or the station. Just run your so station. True. Just run your station like you normally would and just have the technology there to, to measure what's going on. And if it doesn't work, the drill still goes on. The station still goes on. But if the technology shuts down or breaks down or is not, is not operating the way you need to operate, no big deal. It doesn't stop, it doesn't stop what I'm doing. And, the last, and lastly, you got to get there early to set it up. Um, yeah, and I you have, love that. And you I have to have pe you have to have people who can jump in and help figure it out, figure it out for you, so that you as the coach don't have to stop what you're doing to go fix technology. 
which is what Major League Baseball has figured out now because you, as you can see, they're hiring people and that is their only job. Like it can't be like at the collegiate level, the problem is that you're dumping it on the assistant coaches and saying, okay, I'm gonna add another full-time job to your other two full-time jobs. So now you have three full-time jobs and now they're cutting into your like any personal time that you would have had, like time to sleep or something like that. <laughs> it's not gonna happen because you, you now have to go home and either one, learn this technology, two, break down the metrics uh, for each player, three, create programs based on the metrics for each player, and that, that's a lot of work. So you really kind of have to have someone that you trust on your staff to be able to do it because that is another full-time job, and I don't think that it's worth taxing the energy of your coaching staff in that matter because they're not going to have the energy to do what you need them to do most, which is like actually coach. Well, what's interesting, Rob, is, you know, a lot of my former players are trying to get into pro baseball. If they weren't good enough to make it as a player, a lot of them are trying to amp up their background so that they are hireable. Mm -hmm. And this is where having an analytics background with math, economics, and some of the mathematical equations that these teams are using and algorithms is mm -hmm. big, but also being able to use technology. And if you can interview and explain some of the technologies you've used, and some of the different training techniques, whether we're talking about the guys from Driveline or some of these other places, mm -hmm. that's getting people jobs. I mean, you look at Kyle Bodie from Driveline, he just got hired by the Reds. So no longer is it, okay, this guy was you know, a three or 10 year major leaguer, let's hire him to be a coach. Now it's, wait, he majored in economics and has a great math mind and he went to MIT, or mm -hmm. he knows how to use rap soto and hit tracks Let's hire him at our minor league level. So now the stratification, if you will, of what gets hired within pro bowl and even higher levels of college, these having these skill sets has become a huge difference maker. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think um, Major League Baseball has been able to change and say, hey, wait a minute, Let, let's rethink this. We've traditionally, and you know how baseball is about its culture and preserving culture, and this is the way we do it, quote unquote. Basically, baseball has gone a make, undergone a major shift in their entire approach because once upon a time, you could not be on a major league baseball staff if you did not play professional baseball at some level. Right. You cannot. They. they it will not happen. And now, and now you they're got, hiring people like now they're hiring. Yes, and they're, and they're hiring women. I mean, they're, they're doing things yeah. totally out of the box because guess what? What 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 now qualifies you to be a part of this is different than what qualified you years ago because the game has evolved and changed into what it is now, which is absolutely tremendous. You know, so I, this is great, man. And I'm just, I'm, I'm loving what's happening. It's creating jobs, it's creating opportunities. The game is changing. We're watching it evolve in front of our eyes. And I'm excited about it. And um, and, 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 and this, on the tech side, you know, you normally don't see tech nerds who know the game. And then you don't normally see people who know the game who are interested in becoming a tech nerd, you know, at the age of 30, 35, 40 <laughs> or whatever. Right, right. You know? But then you get the guy who's who's a hybrid of both. And that's what's really hireable. And that's you exactly. Know, they have, they exactly. have a real competitive advantage when it comes time for the interview. Exactly. Yeah, that's this is great stuff. 
So um, what's next and what's new for Coach Darren Gurney going forward into 2021, 2020, 2021 and beyond? You know, aside from Darren Gurney, I think we got to look at how society is going to change yeah. with, unfortunately, what's going on with this uh, pandemic and the coronavirus mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. A lot of social norms are going to change. You know, yeah. how is baseball going to be different? Are we going to train in groups are we going to have teams that are close to each other ultimately i think so because i have confidence in the science with getting a vaccine and getting us past this point we're at right now having said that though i think there will be a lot of remote learning with baseball and when we talk about technology i think there's going to be a lot of virtual video kind of teaching if we do have group hitting sessions maybe it's going to be one-on-four or one-on-one uh less of a team format in the off season mm-hmm. i just don't know what it's all going to look like um as far as i go you know i've already been doing a lot of video analysis i do uh something called the baseball doctor where people will email me mm-hmm. video footage yeah. pitching hitting etc and i will take them through and look at a lot of angles so when pitchers or at foot plant, or at release, or at deceleration. I will analyze that for them. I'll suggest drills. So I'm going to probably continue to do a lot of that while we're in this lockdown mode in our country. Um, and then when we do get back to things, I'm, I've become a high-tech guy, and I, you know, I thank you for some of the things you've kind of gotten me in tune with. I'm going to continue to do that with my players. Mm-hmm. And I just hope we can get back to baseball norms but I do think society is going to be different I don't know you know whether it's going to be the pureling our hands every three minutes or <laughs> keeping that six six foot social distancing but we'll see how it becomes I'm sure we're going to have some people that get a little OCD with it um, you know because they're going to be so precautionary about not getting a, a virus or the next bad germ that's out there I can so, see it now I don't know how baseball <laughs> yes I can see it now this scary. you know this this uh this post-game report is brought to you by Perel, the official Major League Baseball sponsor. <laughs> Make sure that you are uh, quarantining the ball, you know, all these kind of different things. How do we remove the germs from the bat handles? You know, how do we, you know, all these different things are going to be happening that are going to yeah. cause. But you know, it's funny, as you were talking about your remote hitting training, at the second you said it, I had two notifications from two of my kids. That just sent me some videos that I, I'm going to be uh, reviewing for them after we hang up. So it's funny that right when, you, right when you said that, right on cue, on my phone oh my notifications, God, my, it popped up. <laughs> my, my request for this stuff has gone up fivefold in the last 10 days mm-hmm. since the shutdown. I mean, just people clamoring it. And I'm saying to myself, well, I get that they want to work on it, but they're probably not going to be outside performing anytime soon. But, you know, I guess they want to get after it, and no better way to do it than send a video, get some feedback, and then go work on it in your garage or your backyard or wherever you can practice right now. Well, you know what I think? I think you are who you are, you know? And if, if you're the kind of person that is a worker, um, this is not going to stop you. If you're the kind of person who is lazy, this this just gives you more of an excuse to be even more lazy. Like, this, this, this thing doesn't really change who a person is. Because if, yeah. if, if I'm the kind of person that's going to be aggressive, creative, I'm going to get after it, I'm going to be, I'm a worker, you cannot stop me. I will find a way to get better. And then I think that's, what, think that's right. just what it is. I, no, I think you're 100% right. We, you know, my last day in school, 
I was talking to my economic students about that in terms of are people, what's people's natural state? Are they naturally lazy or are they naturally driven and hardworking? And I think what we came to with the consensus is it really varies on the person. Sure does. And if you look at what's going on right now with this shutdown, some people are reading books, some people are exercising, some people are eating well, some people are trying to get better or whatever they're trying to be better at, and then others are, you know, being very sedentary, eating poorly, watching a lot of TV and <laughs> playing video games. You know what I mean? Like it's just is what it is. Yep, you are who you are. People I think. are I think who they are. They are yeah. who they are. You know. And, and, and adversity just exposes who you really are. Absolutely. It pressure cooks it. That's it what it does. That's exactly what yep. it does. <laughs> so, like, for me, I'm like, okay, how am I going to adjust? You know, let me figure it out, and then I'm going to go ahead and do it. And if that doesn't work, I'll find another way to adjust. And that's just, what, that's just who I am. Now, the question that I, I give to everybody else is, like, who are you? <laughs> right. Right, so let me ask you, I know I'm the guest yeah. on your show, but okay. let me put it to you. Yeah. What are some things that you think we'll see affected by the coronavirus in terms of baseball or just everyday life? How do you think this will change our world of, of college and pro baseball, Rob? Well, the one thing that I know for sure is that I think that when people get back to the game, there is going to be a, a hunger and a thirst and a newfound passion like we've never seen before. That's the one thing that I know mm. that I know for sure. That when you kiss, right. when people come back, they're going to be like, "Let's go, fired up." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like right. that's that's just right. that's definitely going to happen. In terms of of what I think, how it's going to affect how we go about our you know our our, our day to day in the game and and, and and the events that we have to attend and stuff like that. I think the event host. I mean, it, it really depends on what happens with the treatment and what happens with how we, how we're uh, able to uh, control and slow down the spread. I think it's going to come down to that, which goes back to our own governments and mm. not only the federal government, but state by state, because if you, if you live in a state where like, for example, if you're in the middle of the country, like right now, the middle of the country has not really had that many people test positive, but at the same time, they haven't, they, they haven't really tested that many people either. So if you haven't tested people, then you don't even know, you know what the numbers, right. what the numbers really are. So there's so many questions that are unanswered, but I think if we're able to um, develop a vaccine, develop some treatment, and it, it becomes a, a, it's federal, it's the federal government that's doing it, not just a state by state, governor by governor situation. I think we can, mm. I think I think we can get back to almost close to normal. But if we're not able to do that, um, I think national tournaments may not be able to uh, thrive but regional ones that you can drive to may be able to thrive more um, mm. maybe uh, adapt because I've talked to a couple of tournament directors in the last three days um, that people who direct some pretty big tournaments on the softball side and they've already begun to modify their, their summer uh, platforms because that's going to affect colleges and how they recruit because colleges rely heavily on these platforms and these these, these these regional and national events as a source of recruiting. <clears throat> well, yeah, let me jump in there, Rob, with the college recruiting process is going to become more dependent on video, mm -hmm. more dependent on remote. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening in and you're a sophomore, junior, senior in high school, be aware that video you send to college coaches, make sure it's in the right format. Does it have the proper angles? 
-hmm. meaning when you're hitting or pitching, are, are we shooting it from the right angle? Is it brief enough? We don't want to get a 25-minute video yeah. of you hitting. Um, is your academic profile posted in the right spot? So make sure you're educated before you send in videos because that's going to become, with all these showcases shut down, Rob, with all these summer travel games you know, in jeopardy, let's face it, that video that's emailed to the college coaches is going to become really the sole metric for recruiting. Yeah, I agree 100%. But, and then I also think that um, the, 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 the regional play, you know, some people say, well, regional play is not always that good. We got to get to the national, you know, the national uh, spotlight. But we, remember, we have a MLB draft coming up in June. And you have high school seniors and high school juniors and college seniors and college juniors who were looking to looking to have great seasons to show that they should be drafted. They were, look, they were looking to use the season as a platform to say, hey, coach, I, I can hit 400 at a high level and, and drive in 30 runs, 30, 40, 50, uh, 30, 30 home runs, 20 home runs or whatever it is in college. Um, but now they don't have that opportunity. So now what do we do? Do we what happens to the Major League Baseball draft? You know, there's so many different questions and things that are up in the air with how it, it's almost like a ripple effect of if it stops, if it changes how we um, showcase the players and it changes how we how we how the, we platform or show these events. It's going to change how we recruit. If it changes how we recruit, it changes the face of so many college programs with incoming freshmen. I know they just uh, they just delayed the they canceled the letter of intent. The, mm, the, yep. They canceled the letters of intent that were coming up, um, that were coming up recently. So this is so many, this is so many things, man. And I, I, like I said, I don't know what. This, this, there's so many variables and so many questions that are unanswered right now. Uh, we don't know. We were hope for the best, but we have to prepare for for whatever and just be ready to adapt and adjust to whatever we get and whatever we get. So yeah, man. So um, we're coming. We're getting to get much near to the end of the podcast and um, I wanted to let you know that I'm really excited about this conversation that we had I, I can't wait to put this one up um, and if you want to just Rob let... I haven't been on the phone this long with anyone since my high school girlfriend broke up with me <laughs> sophomore year of college you want to talk about a hitting slump I mean I couldn't even make contact the first two days after our three hour phone call where she told me she didn't want to date me anymore and that's the other thing like you know we, 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 we said you know it's funny you said that because sometimes <laughs> Sometimes we look at like an athlete's batting average and say, "Wow, his batting average went up 150 points this year." That that software that we're using and that new technology is really working for this guy. Maybe not. Maybe he just got a new girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so true, right? Confidence. That is so Confidence true, man. Like 80% of it. I had some of my I had some of my best um my best hitting my best hitting hitting stretches when I had a new girlfriend. I mean, it's just something about that. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Oh my god! So, um, but if you could leave us with um, with something, maybe like you know how, how we get in touch with you, how we can follow you on social, and then um, I'll give you the last word, and then we'll, we'll call this this podcast a wrap. Yeah, well, Rob, this has been a lot of fun, and thanks so much for having me. I'm at Coach Gurney. That's C O A C H G U R N E Y at Twitter, and I'm also available through email same thing coach gurney at gmail.com if you guys have any questions for me or you just want to get a baseball dialogue going or you want to send me some video i'll be happy to help you in any way i can you know my final words are get used to the new normal embrace it and see some of the positives like getting in touch with family members who maybe you lost a little kind of connection with because you were out of the house 12 hours a day working two three different jobs 
or all the different ventures. I know for me as a college baseball coach, I'm now actually spending more time one-on-one with my son working on baseball and basketball and some other things that I wasn't doing previously. So there's a part of this that I'm seeing a silver lining behind. And I would say that for everyone out there, find your silver lining with this coronavirus somehow to see the positives and take advantage of it and make yourself and those around you better.